podcast one production. G'day, welcome to Be A Man. I am very excited about this particular uh, episode because Tom Harkin, he and I became great mates during the filming of Man Up, which was all about men's mental health in Australia. And he is an incredible young man. Um, he really does know how to speak to young people in particular, but also any man. And he challenges masculinity in this country. And I think the way that he talks about it with so much passion and conviction, I think if everyone had a session with Tom, I think our country would be in a much healthier state. We're going to hear from Tom in, in just a few minutes' time. But uh, what was it about Tom that captured you? What was it that so impressed you when you first met him and heard him? Super calm, um, very intelligent, well-educated, but he was able to speak um, the right language to the kids. I think sometimes, and I think we've both got um, teenage boys, sometimes it's difficult to sort of get onto their sort of, I don't know, the, the, the right level for them. We sound like parents. We sound like adults. We we sound like we're not quite connected and we automatically sort of lose them. Even though they love us and probably respect us as dads, they go, what would you know? You know, you're an old bloke. So he's, uh, he's a guy that's sort of around about 30 years of age, but he just somehow uses the right language and the right way of talking to young blokes who I've seen him walk into a room and have 30 kids all playing on their phones and mucking around and thinking, how good's this? I don't have to be in a normal class today because I've got this whatever it is because they're just happy to be there and not having to go to school. And within half an hour, they're all looking at him, waiting for inspiration. And within an hour and a half, the guys that have really had to show emotion are showing emotion and the people around them are giving them a very safe environment to do so. I've never seen anyone quite look after the space quite as well as he does. So uh, I'm excited to uh, talk to Tom and to get our listeners um, an understanding of what a champ he is. Tom, for you personally, what was it that inspired you to start your workshops? Can you give us your story? It's funny because I've been asked this a bit and I I think I've really thought deeply about it. Um, Initially, I'd say it's growing up in Frankston in this male kind of macho society Um, and... You know, I admired I admired that model. You know, I looked up to these these blokes. I was a tiny little kid. You know, I had red hair and braces, and I was I was white as a ghost, and 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 just never got over fifty kilos. I was hating myself as a male. I did not live up to that stereotype. And but my mum was um, a really strong matriarch, and she had a, a really heightened sense of emotional intelligence, and she gave me that, and that was enough to equip me to manoeuvre my way in with the big boys, and 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 for them to take me in as a mate, and I loved these guys, like I idolised them. They were charismatic. They wrote their own rules. They picked up all the chicks. They dominated the sporting field. Nobody messed with them. People were intimidated by them, excited by them. You know, um, I, I wanted that electric thing that these blokey blokes had. Um, and so I was, cl- I was really tight mates with these boys and I'm still in touch with them. And then around about 17, um, that stereotype that they were nailing so well started to snap back on them. It started to make life really hard for these boys. Um, they started getting kicked out of school. Fists to solve problems were getting them into deep, deep trouble. Um, and they were just lost with no rudder. And there was nobody there going, hey, sorry, we've sold you a bad stereotype. Let's just help you out here. It was like, no, nah, they're bad eggs. So let's 
you know, throw them out the side. And it really hurt me because I, I knew that there was more to these guys. They weren't just the stereotype. I had deep conversations with them. They were really good guys, but they weren't seen that way from the people around them. So then I was really lucky to, to fall into um, an organisation, the Reach Foundation that Jim Steins was heading up. And so I was surrounded by Jim Steins and the, and the males who looked up to him that were about four years older than me in university level. And these were blokey blokes, you know. They were big dudes, you know. They could hold themselves. They were charismatic. You know, they had great banter. But they also were really at home with shedding some tears and having a bit of emotion. And it was the best role modelling that I could have had. So once I had left there and kind of gone on, done corporate facilitation and a few other things, well, obviously, this kind of societal thing started, you know, really rearing its head. It became very obvious that men are deeply struggling because they're not getting that gift that I was given. Um, and so, you know, after 10 years of doing it, it just seemed, seemed like a crime not to pass it on. And, and so a bunch of the guys that I facilitated with back in the day, I called them up and I said, listen, we've got an opportunity here to pass on what we were lucky enough to have and what we have in our friendship groups. Um, and so that's that's where it came from. And you do that so well. I've been at many of those events. In fact, here at Triple M, we went through around the country talking to blokes in clubs and pubs and uh, within half an hour, everyone is pretty much focused on on what you're saying and then there's lots of activities there that, that don't allow you just to sit down and, and listen because Tom doesn't want to preach. But uh, that type of environment is what you're trying to, to involve, not just in the school visits but it, just with men in, in clubs and pubs and businesses be, be a part of the day so, they, so they're so not just getting pre- uh, preached to. Oh, it's essential. Like I think um, the issue is like a lot of guys, when if they hear that they're coming to an event where guys are going to talk honestly, they, they turn and run or, or they don't rock up. It's not something that guys are, you know, running to do and, and really pumped about, often because they've got no reference point for it. It just doesn't show up in the stereotype that we're given from a very young age. And so until they've been in a room and they've experienced it, not just been preached at or heard about why guys should talk, I think we've all heard that rhetoric. Um, until they've been in a room and they've seen their own peers talk honestly and they've gone, you know what, that's not emasculating, um, that's not cringy, that's not weird, it's actually really captivating and, and, and super interesting and insightful. Um, until they've had that reference point, then how do they go and feel motivated to create that in their own lives? One of the things we're trying to achieve here in this podcast series is to help have more and help other people have more conversations about all these issues, about what it means to be a man. So um, you said that it's very hard for men to understand that and to come into that if they don't know what it is. How can we help that? How can, even if it's not, not in a formal context, but even if it's just one mate to another or one friend to another, how can we help one friend make another friend feel more comfortable about talking and about being open? I think it comes down to the way that we bring up our men, you know, how we raise young men. Um, and, and, and I think it comes down to heroes. You know, I've got a, um, an 18-month-old boy and his favourite person is, you know, a two-year-old, two-and-a-half, three-year-old. Um, and, you know, I, I like to think I'm his favourite person, but 
if there's a two and a half year old in the room, I'm not I'm not there anymore. He's just kind of gobsmacked with this kid, and I don't think we lose that as men. I think we always kind of look up to those that are a bit older than us, those that are a bit in front of us, and we aspire to be like them, whether they've got healthy attributes or unhealthy attributes. And I don't think there's enough charismatic role models. Uh, showing and embodying how to have a deep, honest conversation in a way that guys go, oh, geez, all right, that's how you go about it. That doesn't look so bad, actually. Um, I kind of rate the way that that guy's talking. So we need to have more of those role models and it needs to be built into the normalised upbringing of of a young man. Um, Otherwise, we've got, you know, tomorrow man, um, in essence, working with older males. So we work with right across the spectrum. We focus a lot on young males for that very reason. But when we're working with older males, we're kind of, um, we're, we're behind the ball, you know, we're, we're trying to catch up on 30 years of, of them being conditioned in a certain way. And the saddest and most predictable thing that often happens, whether I'm in a footy club, whether I'm in a blue collar environment, a white collar environment, um, it doesn't matter where it is with adult males. We'll have 50-year-old males in the room. And at the end of every workshop, you say, how often would you have had an honest conversation at this depth with a bunch of blokes? And every time, never. I've never had an honest conversation like this with blokes. Tom, I remember one of those uh, events down in Melbourne. It was a doctor. There was a whole heap of blokes in there, probably about 24 of us, all white-collar sort of guys. A lot of blokes that ran, you know, big businesses and sporting clubs. And at the end of the event, I said, how is that for you? And he said, I just spoke to someone about something in my life that I've never spoken to anyone about, ever. And another bloke said, I've been playing with the same three other blokes game of golf for the last 20 years, and I've never spoken about that particular topic with them. That was two blokes out of 24 that just I got across. Because you built such a safe environment, Tom, and that's what I gather from the Man Up experience and the time I've been spending with you and also with the doctor. If you build that safe environment, us blokes, we are willing to talk. If we are given a bit of a guide, we are willing to go there. But unfortunately, not of it, not enough of us get in that safe environment. Yeah. Well, I think there's a myth that guys don't like to talk. Um, and that myth will hold until guys see, with their own eyes, see that myth broken. And, and I think a caveat to that is you're looking for charismatic role models. So if I'm so, running... So a, not Gus and I. No, you guys work, you guys work. Um, But like when I'm walking in, if I'm running a workshop with, with, you know, 30 year 10 blokes or or even 100 of them, um, the workshop only works if the alpha male buys in. So that one guy that you most think is going to go against the workshop and pull it apart and and make you wish you never took up this job um if he buys in then the whole group goes there because everybody's waiting for that guy everybody has a level of fear or attraction towards what that guy represents and so if he goes there then the coast is clear and we have those alpha male role models in our culture in pop culture um in our schools our homes um we need the blokiest blokes to lead the way um that's going to cause the biggest impact so tom in in your workshops particularly because I know you clearly you've done a lot of work in this area. 
how do you, well, what do you do in the workshops and particularly what do you do that, that allows or encourages that alpha male uh, to stand up and speak? We don't go, I don't go in with any agendas. I, I, I'm not looking to control or force them to think anything other than what they already do think. Um, I just want to pose an experience for them that, that I guess it asks some tough questions and it, and it allows them to find themselves at their own answers about where guys are at. So I guess for starters, um, we inspire the stereotype to pop out of them. So we ask them what they would want to be doing rather than doing a workshop on men's health or whatever they, they think the workshop's going to be about. What would you rather be doing? And they start to throw out all the stereotypical things that blokes would love to do, have a few beers with the boys. And depending on the age group, if you've got 17-year-olds, it gets pretty filthy and, and out there. But, but it, does, it comes thick and fast, you know. Like this stereotype is not something that they need to deeply consider. They're just flying it out there. Um, so once they realise that it's a natural part of them, they carry it everywhere they go, we start to challenge it a bit. And probably one of the key things that we do that that stands out to people most, we get a few alpha males um, up to volunteer for something. They don't know what it is, but they think it's going down the stereotype road, so they're all pretty geared up for it. And then we pull out the nail polish and we ask them to put nail polish on both hands um, and then and that's all uh, like a, a bit of laughs and people are just like, you know, stuffing around, taking the piss out of each other and all that kind of stuff. But the boys are like, oh, yeah, 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 you know, you've done this before, haven't you, Billy? And, you know, all that kind of stuff's going on. Um, but when they find out they've got to leave it on for two weeks, they freak um, and generally a bit of anger comes into it and nah, stuff this, not doing it, and it gets a bit serious. And so we, we then start to unpack a little bit of, um, you know, guys like to think that they're the rule maker. You know, I make my own rules. I'm my own man. I do whatever I want. And when they realize that this stereotyped rules have them by the balls, um, they get a bit pissed off, you know. They, they kind of go, I don't want to be a parrot. I'm not some puppet for some past generation's rules about what it means to be a man. Um, and so then we've kind of got them captive. We're, we're not walking in there going, hey, guys, you know, we need to break the stereotype because it's, it's not ours. And they're getting a visceral experience of it. They're going, yeah, you're right. I'm actually shit, shit scared to walk down the street with this nail polish on. I don't even know who put the rule in place. Am I really the man's man that I think I am? Or am I a parrot for a past generation? Now, when I've, when I've seen you do the, the work with various people, white collar, blue collar, in a pub, at, at the school, my son was involved in one in Man Up, Doctor, that Tom did. And the first half an hour was what Tom was explaining there. He, they were throwing what, what it means to be a man onto a whiteboard and it was, you know, strong and dependable and look after your missus and be a good person, that sort of stuff. All real stereotypy sort of stuff beer, sport, that type of jazz. And then the, when the nail polish came out, it was quite strange because I knew that set of boys, but I wasn't sitting in there. I was just watching from another room. It, I noticed that once one particular boy who is the alpha did it, a few more decided to do it, and that particular boy then kept it on until he got home. And then he told me later that his dad told him to take it off. And he goes, no, Dad, I, I, I'm breaking the stereotype. I'm, who, ma- who made the rule that my sister and mum are the only ones that can wear nail polish? And his dad just, you know, was too old-fashioned to understand and so forth. He then rang me, the father, and said, you know, what's this all about? And I said, well, this is a wonderful lesson for you as well. Um, but that was, that, was, that was one particular situation. With the, with the workshops that we did at a school, 
um, Tom, can you sort of explain how difficult it is for you to to get so many people, in this case it was 250, father and sons together and what a difficult thing that is and how you need to sort of, I suppose, teach two generations in one night at the same time? Yeah, I mean, difficult's an interesting word. It's just more so you're sitting with the collective discomfort of 250 people. Um, so, you know, when those men walked in, the room was was kind of set up in circles, you know, all facing in towards the middle. Um, so nothing really blocking them from the action that was going on. They're all facing in towards each other. And so to give you a mental picture, all these father and sons are walking in, sitting down, awkwardly sitting there, not talking to each other, um, you know, playing on their phones, kind of going, what is going on? What have we come to? And, you know, for 50% of them, they're there because their wives said, hey, you should go and do this with our son. Um, and so it's not so much difficult, but it's just working them into the point where it's saying, guys, these are the stats. This is what's going on for Australian males. It's scary. It, 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 it doesn't, these stats don't discriminate. Um, within one degree of separation, everybody in this room will know somebody that has been experienced one of those stats where it's anxiety depression unfortunately suicide the the numbers are huge of guys standing up in the room to say i know somebody that's been impacted by this so it's time to learn how to build some emotional muscle so that when the big moments happen in our lives that muscle is strong and ready to help us I think too often it's waiting until that moment happens that we start to get the help happening for guys and the muscle isn't even there. So you're building from scratch. And you've hit on a really important point, Tom, because we've kind of already indirectly or subtly been talking about why the old stereotypes need to change, but we haven't really explained why. And, and you know, the research is pretty clear that men uh, and younger boys and men who, who, who associate more closely, who have stronger beliefs in those older stereotypes like strong, etc., uh, tend to have much higher rates of depression, anxiety and suicidality. So um, you know, this is why we need to break it. Yet, uh, as you said, it's uh, and as Gus has example showed about that father of the son it's um you know it's a real challenge uh but uh, uh what then would you um so for fathers out there maybe if we just take a step to that you know what, what do you say to the father of a son who's who 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 might be aware that his old ways are not ideal but he's still finding how to change the to the new better ways yeah um well i might use a i'm gonna throw you in it here a bit gussie um <laughs> But sometimes, sometimes even when you do have the ability to have the emotional conversation, um, it can still be challenging because you, you might have, you know, three, four decades of conditioning in, you know, the blokey way. So at the end of that workshop that we ran um, in Gus's son's school, in Jack's school, um, Gus and I had a, a chat afterwards and, um, and Gus was saying, geez, that, that workshop's got to be run in every school in Australia, you know. Like every kid should have that workshop at least once. Um, so you wouldn't want to do it too much more than that because it's pretty full on, but at least once. And uh, I'm not sure if you remember, but my, my uh, question was, why only once? Um, and, and, and you were saying, because it's pretty full on, you know, pretty exhausting, pretty intensive stuff. And so I was saying, well, does Jack play sport? Yeah, yeah, Jack plays sport. Do you want him to train? 
Yeah. Do you want him to just train once a year? Well, no, many times. And how hard do you want him to train? You don't want him to exhaust himself, surely, tire himself out, surely. So, you know, maybe just like, no, I want him to train hard. So why don't we have the same um, thoughts on emotion? All right, train deep, train hard. The other side of that was um, the next question Gus asked was, what would you say to the fathers out there? Um, you know, because I've had these kids in my kitchen, my lounge room. I didn't realise these things. They haven't told me, and I like to think I'm creating that space for them. Um, and my answer to that question is there's so many dads, so many male older role models out there, coaches, that would hand on heart say, I want my kids, my young men, to be able to be at home with their emotions, to be able to ask for help when they need it, to be able to seek help when they need it. Um would those same men do the same for themselves? Do they enact and display the same behaviours? And too often it doesn't line up that way. So I was like, no, 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 I'm good. I'll sort myself out. But the young fellas, they need help. You know, I really want them to talk about their emotions. Well, the young fellas are never going to know how to do it unless they see the guys that they admire doing it. So if the guys see, you know, at an extreme, Gus talking honestly to the boys, you know, how are you, mate, how are you? And one of the young guys asks him how he is and he says, mate, I'm actually struggling. I'm actually having a pretty tough week, to be honest. Yeah, there's a bit going on and they, and they go, oh, well, geez, I did not expect that. I actually don't think I've ever heard a man honestly tell me about his emotional life. Okay, now I've experienced it. It's been exemplified. And now he's back to being the gussy that I love. So so maybe I can ha- have both of those skills. Mm, I really like that point about training, I suppose, and, and not just doing this once. Uh, I went away with my teenage son about 18 months ago um, on a, on a five-day camping um, just with f- other fathers and sons, about, uh, about 10 of us. Um, and I won't go into the details, but, but it was a similar sort of exercise about, about men uh, talking to the younger men and, and trying to pass on what worked and what didn't work. And um, in short, it was incredibly powerful uh, for both myself and my, my son and, and the other, uh, other men that were there. Um, and for probably a week or so afterwards, um, there was still this that power uh, remained, I suppose. And my son and I had this very strong bond and we would sort of look at each other and almost not even have to say anything to remember it. But to be honest, you know, within another couple of weeks, it kind of dissipated pretty quickly. Um, and so I just want to reiterate or reinforce the point you made. We, we need to do this stuff more than once. We need to do it every day, every week um, to make sure that it really sticks. I mean, one of the examples that we use in the workshop is, is to say... Um, what would you do, and this is, I mean, say we're in Victoria, AFL obsessed. What would you do if um, you got a call up next week and you were told that you were playing the AFL grand final? They're a player short and you're on. You're, you're up against those guys. And they say, I'd freak out. I'd chuck the phone. I'd break my leg. I'd run for it. I'd do whatever I could to get out of that game because I'd be packing it. And, and they say that across the board. You say, oh, why is that? Oh, I'm not strong enough. I haven't been training. I haven't played. Like those guys have been playing this for, for their whole lives. They've been training in the gym for it. They've been playing practice matches. They've played on the real field and, and played the real games. They've even played finals to strengthen their muscles at it. Um, and so then we flip it back on them to say, listen, it's guaranteed that you're going to have an emotional grand final. You're probably going to play many of them. Um, and yet 
in our society, we're not normalising conditioning for guys to learn about their emotions. We don't train them for life for their emotions. We don't put them on the practice field and we don't put them in game time enough. And, and then we wonder why are these guys, when the big emotional grand final hits them, why are they leaving us too often? Why are they running for cover and not talking to us? Why aren't they asking for our help? Well, because they're not conditioned. They don't have the emotional muscle. So they've been thrown onto the grand final pitch as a kid who's never played football. It's just too scary. It's too daunting. It's too huge. This stuff needs to be normalised. It needs to be ingrained in our society from from zero up for young men. We, we, we've talked... Quite a few times, I suppose, about the the fact that the old stereotypes not working. Um, I'm a bit of a fan of some research that's come out of the UK by a guy called Tim Lomas. I'm not sure if you're familiar who who talks uh, not about masculinity but about masculinities plural. Um, and and in very simple, you know, at the risk of oversimplifying, his premise is there isn't one type of masculinity that we should aim towards. There isn't one type of masculinity that will work for all of us. Given that, or if we accept that, how can we? redefine how can we start to paint a picture of something positive that we and our younger men or all of our men i suppose can aim towards you got any thoughts on that yeah well i i mean i think that's the big riddle right now the the riddle is what what is it to be a man like what is the modern day male um i think most people can say all right well we kind of know what the 50s man was and we know what the old school you know our dad's generation you know we know what defined a man then um what is it today and i think you know for women the the stereotype of what it means to be a woman has been expanded they've got range now um more more so than they have had in the past in terms of how they can express what it means to be a woman today in this country whereas men we still haven't fully expanded it yet um we're still kind of stuck in in a fairly narrow stereotype of what it means to be a man so i think we need to look more at principles rather than defined attributes. Um, And I think what I mean by that is um, in the workshop, ironically, we're using the same, um, we're using the same setup to to empower guys to cry as they do to be macho and puff their chest out. So for a blokey bloke, he says, you know, I'm, I'm the guy, I don't care what anybody else thinks about me, I'm going to be my own man, whatever, you know, I'm hard as nails and all that kind of stuff. But when they find out that they didn't write the rules and the rules have got them by the balls and they're scared to break them, well, then they go, all right, well, yeah, well, nobody's my boss, I'm going to cry, watch me cry, I'm going to cry harder than the other boys. And then everybody's like, yeah, well, I'm going to cry too, I don't care what anybody thinks either, you know. And so ironically, you're picking up the same construct it's this kind of, I'm my own man, and so I'll break the stereotype as opposed to, I'm my own man, so I'm going to live the stereotype. So the range within that is huge. I'm my own man, I'm going to wear pink socks because I want to. What, like, what's it to you? Like, that's what I'm going to do. Um, or I'm going to do gymnastics, or yeah, I'm going to play footy, or I'm going to wear my emotions, or I'm going to um, tell you about how in love I am with my girlfriend. And how much I just love her, like, and the things I love about her. And the boys might give me a bit of crap, but whatever. Like, that's just me. I'm a lover. Like, and, and so it's more teaching the principle rather than how they manifest or live out that principle, I think. Tom, why is that 
Aussie stereotype driving blokes to anxiety, depression and, and unfortunately suicide? I think it's a massively contributing factor. Um, it, regardless of the demographic of male or the age bracket of male that we're talking to, they all say the same stereotype. Guys, don't cry. You know, they're tough, they're strong, they provide, they don't, they don't need help, um, they don't talk about problems. Um, at young ages, they say we solve them with our fists and we get them done and then you make you pick each other up off the ground, it's all good, and we like that way better. Um, so all of those things move away from talking, asking for help when we need it, expressing vulnerability and tears, which which aren't a part of the rule book that they're giving given as men. And so as you grow up with that and get to a point where you're past the, you know, a lot of teenagers have real challenges, but as life gets tougher and tougher, you've got guys across the board that are experiencing a bottle up of emotion going on inside and no normalized avenues that they can use to get help, get support, to emote, um, and, and to get a release on that pressure. And so it bottles up and, and it becomes more severe. It, it, it's interesting working with teenagers because when you work with teenagers, the emotion's actually quite close to the surface. They haven't unlearnt their emotion very well yet, so they haven't really hardened up. Um, so there's quite of a bit of emotion there with young guys, and they're pretty articulate as well about their emotions because they kind of live with them just under the surface a fair bit. Unfortunately, when you're working with guys in their 40s and 50s, the, the, there's there's a lot of work that's been done to bury those emotions very deep. And so for those guys, often, oh, I don't know what I feel. I don't even know where it is. I haven't cried in 15 years. Um, I was on a program on the weekend called the Fly Program. It's a great program up in Threadbow, just putting guys out in nature, you know, to t- have honest conversations about mental fitness. And, um, and one of the guys at the end, he said, oh, I reckon I've, I've cried more here than I have in the last 15 years. Um, and it was only a few tears he shed, he, you know, the eyes welled up a couple of times. It wasn't out of control, you know, wailing or anything. But he said, like, yeah, I, not in 15 years. Um, and, and I think that's an issue. You've got to be able to release that. We've got that mechanism as humans for a reason. Yeah, I think you've hit on a really important point, Tom, which is um, a lack of emotional vocabulary or a lack of awareness. One in four or five suffer depression or anxiety. Um, but it, that's... <laughs> I think that's an underestimate. Most people believe that's an underestimate because that's a, that's a technical diagnosis, a formal, well, it's partly underreporting, but it's also a formal diagnosis. So all those people who just miss out on a diagnosis, the sort of mild or even moderate forms wouldn't actually meet. And that's, that's a lot of people. Uh, it doesn't also include people that, that cover it up with alcohol or which is a lot of blokes or that express it more in anger rather than depression. So, but yeah, the, 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 the I guess the most commonly cited statistic is is probably one in four or five, um, but then, then if you, but if you wrap up all the various forms, all the different diagnoses, uh, you know, I think you're looking at one in three or one even one in two. But certainly, I know when I was younger, and even to some extent today, you know, I think there's a lot of blokes who don't know that they know they're feeling something horrible. They know it's distressing, um, but they don't even know whether it's depression or anxiety, or, or they don't know what to. And, and we know from the research, there's some really good psychological research that is, if all you can do is label your emotion, and this is one of the first steps, if you can just give it a name and as specific as possible. 
possible. That in itself is massively helpful. If you can then know that, okay, I'm feeling this and I'm not the only one in the world that feels this and it's okay to feel this and I could talk about this to my mate, then those other things uh, can re- and you know, they'll, they'll be incredibly helpful. But as we've talked about today, they, they kind of go against this idea of this unhelpful idea of masculinity. They do, yeah. I mean, on your point, there's there's a moment in all of the workshops that we run where we do this kind of have you everish game, step to the line, and there's a key question that's asked in that step to the line. If you've had a dark time um, ever in your life, you've had a real dip, and you haven't quite known the way out of it. Um, now, every male steps to the line on that one. Stay on the line if you've had one of those in the last year and you've still got about 80% of the blokes on the line. Last six months, you've still got about 60% of them. Last three months, you've still got about 40% of them. Last month, you've still got about 20% of them as approximate numbers. And often after that, the boys are going, and, and the men, because the, the numbers are the same, um, they, they're going, wow, I would have had no idea that my mates, because we're all just bantering away and we're all just sitting above it and, you know, punching each other in the arm, having a bit of a laugh and getting on with it. I would never have known that those boys or men are going through that stuff. And it's uh, the, the best thing about it is, as you said, there's a bit of like, all oh, right, you're going through it too. All right, well, maybe we can put some words to this. I'm not going to be that only weirdo that's talking about my emotions. All the other blokes are going, I don't know what he's talking about because we're all sorted. We're all, we're all fine. Why are depression, anxiety and suicide still dirty words? Why is there still such a stigma attached to it, Tom? I think I would challenge that a bit. Okay. Um, because I think that the, those words are cleaning up. Um, and, and I think that they've become more and more acceptable in mainstream language, um, today than, than they have been in my memory. Uh, I mean, I'm only in my thirties, but, um, I think that they're cleaning up in terms of people are feeling more okay about saying these words, depression, anxiety, suicide, and feeling that there's a need to say these words. I, I can appreciate where you're coming from too, but I can also, as soon as I hear depression, uh, mental illness, even though it's more heard, there's still a stigma attached to it by a lot of the old-fashioned Aussie blokes, if you like, who are trying to run that stereotype to just go, oh, yeah, every time there's a problem in someone's life, they'll, they'll throw out the depression card. They'll throw out the mental illness thing. So there's still some stigma stuff attached. Yes, yeah. No, I completely understand what you're saying. Um I think that it comes down to, I mean, we've had a guy say in one of the workshops we were running for a counsellor, this guy came in, he got word of what was happening in the workshop. And so he came in and he was, his head was about to blow off. He was fuming. And we were going around just, what's your name and, you know, and why'd you rock up? And he got, I've, I've been bloody tricked into this. I don't, I don't want to do this stuff. Blokes today are weak as piss and they need a crack over the head. And he started going on about his apprentices and them on their phones. They can't handle stuff. And as you said, they'll throw out depression as soon as things get a bit hard for them. Um, Well, it turned out that, you know, his dad had forced him through 15 years of boxing um, because he was a redhead and and he was like, you got to get tough. And so he hated it, but he was forced to do it. 
Um, and then without going into details, basically his dad had really, really hurt him, like in a massive way, had caused huge trauma in his life later on down the track. And he said he was the guy I relied on. He was the guy that I put my faith in and he completely let me down. And he said, guys here wonder why I don't have mates at work. Why well, I don't have mates because I'll never let that happen to me again. And with that, some of the some of the emotions started to, to kind of fall out. He said after the break in the workshop, he said, boys, boys, you know, I hated this thing and I was like, stuff this, not doing this, not putting on the nail polish and all that kind of stuff. And he said, I can tell you right now, it's, I thought my head was going to blow off and, and my head feels light. It feels really light. And so for him, his whole thing with the depression anxiety, he sees it as a weakness. He doesn't see it as a strength. He doesn't see that there's a way to take control of your life through the expression of vulnerability. He's just saying, if we do all that stuff, we're going to become languid. We won't be able to get our jobs done. We won't be able to look after our families. Can I, at, the, at the risk of being too nice, um, I'm going to agree with both of you because if we look at the research, it's actually pretty clear. That there's no doubt that, as Tom said earlier, things are changing. There's been massive improvement over the last couple of decades in terms of reductions of stigma, increased awareness around depression, anxiety, etc. But at the same time, as Gus suggested, there is yeah, there are still people, and, and I suppose uh, at the risk of generalising, maybe the older generation, who still struggle. But we've got to be realistic, though. We can't expect that generation or some of those people to change overnight. Mm. Or, you know, we know that it's hard for people to change their beliefs. We know that it's hard for people to change their attitudes about things. Um, and there are still some myths that haven't been directly targeted. Like, you know, if we allow people to talk about depression, then all of a sudden they're just going to take days and days and weeks and weeks off work, which is not true. You know, we know organisations, for example, that are more open about mental health policies and have more uh, more modern or contemporary policies, they actually have higher engagement rates and better. So, but again, I think, you know, it's important to acknowledge both sides. There's massive improvement, um, which is really really important to acknowledge and really fantastic. Um, but, you know, it's going to take time and there will continue to be um, certain groups of people or certain individuals who will struggle. Because imagine, you know, for example, if this guy, if he'd been told that for all of his life by his father and probably his peers, uh, how can we expect him to just change overnight? Mm. Yeah, there's not a chance. Not a Tom, chance. Tom, looking at the future, obviously you and I are working together through the Gotcha for Life and doing stuff and I we're, off, we're heading off into the country which is, you know, the, the country or rural parts of Australia are much worse than the cities um, pretty soon. So I love being out there because it's such a positive vibe and I know how many people will enjoy it and they'll come out of it and already change their lives. How do we spread that word? How do we get back to that first conversation we first met where every kid needs to have this in their life, every man needs to have this in their life? How, how, do, how do we get that because I, I keep seeing all this great work being done but unfortunately the numbers on anxiety depression and unfortunately suicide are you know are, are awful if people don't know it's the number one way to lose your life in australia now if you're a young man between 15 and 45 or losing six a day it's if that was a road toll they'd ban cars mm, mm. so i i think the number one thing that we do in the workshops that we rest our hat on is is training emotional muscle and training guys to talk with gravity um, and talking with gravity is about talking with depth about things that matter and often it'll silence a room around you when you start talking like that. Often your heart rate will go through the roof and your head will do battle. Should I be saying this? Should I be saying this? What are the boys going to think of me? Um, and your stomach will sometimes turn and drop a little bit. And 
there's a bit there's obvious discomfort to that. It takes great courage to step into those kind of conversations. It also takes courage to hold space for another bloke who's talking with gravity um, with you and hold the line and just go, you know what, I'm not going to try and pat him on the back. I'm not going to try and put a six-pack in his hand and say, let's just go and have a few beers. This is a bit rough. Um, I'm just going to hold space for him. I'm just going to let him talk. I'm going to listen to him for a bit. Um, I'm going to give him some space. Um, I think if we're going to spread the word about this and we're going to spread mass change and all of those kind of things, I think we need all Australian men to ante up in a sense and go, you know what, I'm going to have the courage to step into that awkward moment. I'm going to have the courage to let my heart rate raise a bit and let my stomach go a bit funny and have a conversation with my dad, my son, my brother, my mate that I wouldn't have usually had. And I'm going to try and do that in small doses over time, regular moments in my life, whether it's weekly or fortnightly or monthly, I'm going to try and have little 30-second grabs of that so that if I get to a point where I really need it, it might save my life. Or if my mate, I start to realise he's not great, I don't have to wait until I get a bad phone call. Um, I can step in earlier because I'm practising this skill, I'm building the muscle so I can use it. Um, I think that's the most important, that we step up for each other and we go, you know what, Um, we value the guy that runs into the pack in footy to help out his mate, you know, and his heart rate's booting and his stomach's going nuts and he's going, but I've got to do it for my mate, I've got to protect him. Well, I feel like we need to do the same thing in an emotional sense. We need to go, you know what, we're having beers at the pub, I'm going to just drop it a little bit, just for 30 seconds. How are you really going, mate? Because um, I don't think we really ever talk like that, and I've noticed you've been a bit, yeah, a bit off lately. Like, are are you doing all right? Or leading by example by saying, you know what, mate, we usually never talk about this stuff, but we got to. So I'm going to drop it for a second. I'm I'm struggling a bit. This is going on with the wife at home and the kids, and work's pretty intense. And yeah, I've been a bit black for the last week or so. Um, and I don't need the alarm bells to go off, but I just need to start talking about it so that maybe we've got the opportunity to get some support and turn it around. That's why I love your example of the grand final. It's like, you know, getting thrown into the grand final, you need to have practised, you need to have gone through some, you know, missing missing the handball, missing the kick, missing the pass, whatever sport you're playing, you know, missing the ball and having your stumps hit. Well, that's the only way you're going to end up being able to play in a test match and that's what these big emotional moments are, test matches or grand finals. Dr. Happy, what can someone do if they are depressed? What can they do if they are feeling even worse than that, suicidal? Uh, well, a very simple answer is reach for help. You know, we, we've got to, um, and part of this busting the masculinity myth, I suppose, is that asking for help isn't a weakness. Um, we ask for help in so many areas of our lives. We ask for help, um, you know, we go to lawyers, we go to accountants, we go to dentists, you know, we, we seek mentors in the workplace. So we, we know that in so many areas of our life, it's okay. And in fact, it's helpful. You know, we know the best sports people in the world have coaches. Mm. So this shouldn't be any different. We shouldn't, it shouldn't be any different to ask for help and to seek a, a professional or an expert uh, when it comes to our mental health. Um, we can start off by going to our GP. That's often the easiest bit. Then maybe a clinical psychologist. So it depends a bit on the context. Um, thankfully now, actually, an even easier way is there are lots of great online resources. So, you know, here in Australia, we've got, uh, we've got Helpline, we've got Men's Line, we've got Beyond Blue, we've got Black Dog Institute, et cetera, et cetera. And most of those, all of those sites have some really, really useful uh, facts and figures, even tip sheets. So uh, what I would say is, you know, if, 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 even if you're unsure, um, reach out and ask for help. Talk to a mate. Talk 
talk to your wife or your husband or your boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever it might be because um, uh, there are solutions. There are very effective treatments um, uh, that can help most people most of the time. If we suspect someone close to us might be depressed or going down that line or in a dark place, um, what advice can you give them? Because sometimes it's... It's a difficult one, isn't it? Well, I, I wouldn't necessarily say to give advice. It's not necessarily about giving advice. It's, it's more about listening. Um, it's more about asking some key questions. Like, I mean, we've probably all heard or many of us heard of Are You OK Day? Fantastically powerful and effective movement that has led to uh, probably millions of Australians uh, and, and beyond asking uh, their mates, asking their colleagues, Are You OK? We then need to ask a few more questions. We need to sometimes prompt that because we know a lot of people, um, myself included, have become very good at coming covering it up. Yeah. It's very easy to just say, oh, I'm fine. You know, everything's dinky die or whatever. As soon as I hear someone say, I'm fine, yeah. <laughs> it just sends out a red flag for me. Exactly. So what we sometimes need to do is just ask another question, know, really, you know, oh, I've noticed this, you know, you seem yeah. to have changed in this area. So, but, but I think it's, what's important is I think a lot of people are scared about, you know, I don't know what to say. Well, you don't have to have the answers. If you're coming as a friend or a colleague or a relative or whatever, you don't have to have the answers. All you need to do is to show that you care, is to show that you'll be there, is to be prepared to listen. And then if necessary, help them get to someone who does have the answers. But you don't have to, you know, you don't have to be the psychologist. You just need to get them or encourage them or invite them to go onto that website or read that tip sheet or uh, maybe talk to their doctor. If this episode caused any concerns, please contact lifeline.org.au or give them a call, 13 11 14. The Be A Man podcast series is presented by me, Gus Warland, and my great mate, Dr. Tim Sharp, produced by the beautiful Liv Proud, and executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Be A Man is recorded at the studios of Podcast One Australia. For more episodes of Be A Man, head to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or look us up on iTunes. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review us.